chapter 44. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three ways. Three ways that Yahweh purges idolatry and produces faith in him alone. Three ways that Yahweh purges out idolatry and produces faith in him alone. And the first way he does that, number one, is through the salvation he provides. Through the salvation he provides. In other words, get this now, this is very important. Instead of just moving in for the kill and attacking idol worship directly, Yahweh begins with a preview of his plan for the end of history, of the salvation that he is going to bring at the end of the age. That's his first strategy to purge idolatry. Which means, get this, God exposes the folly of idolatry with the doctrine of eschatology. End times kind of stuff. And it's incredible. Look at verses 1 through 5. Starting in verse 1. But now, but now, hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Stop right there. We cannot, I repeat, we cannot miss the importance of the but now. We can't miss the importance of the contrast, but now listen to me. Oh, Jacob, do you see that? The but now is not a small thing. That is a monumental thing. And the reason is because the hope that Yahweh is about to give is the solution to the bad news he just gave at the end of chapter 43. Do you remember that? Chapter 43 ends with a scathing condemnation of their two-faced hypocritical worship and a guarantee of their future devastation. Verse 28, chapter 43, Yahweh says, But I will give Jacob to destruction and Israel to reviling. In the context, that can mean only one thing. Invasion is coming. Exile is coming. Babylon is on their way. And 120 years later, they showed up to Jerusalem, torched the city, and took the people captive as slaves. And notice there in verse 28, Yahweh says, I will give Jacob to destruction. I will do this. I will give my people into the clutches of their killers. Which, by the way, exile was the dread of any nation. Because you understand, nations don't come back from exile. They disappear because of exile. And if that happened to the people of Israel, all the promises of God fall to the ground, and God is proved a liar. You understand, don't you? The exile to Babylon was a faith-shattering crisis, which is why, which is why the but now of chapter 44, verse 1, means everything. Why? Because it means it's not over for Israel. That is theologically out of the question. Because notice, there in verse 1, the same Jacob and Israel given by God to destruction are the same Jacob and Israel that he chose as his servant. He chose them. He singled them out and selected them. He handpicked them to be his people. And note this, once you are chosen, you cannot be unchosen. And yet, how do we know? How do we know that there is a bright and glowing future for these apostate people? Look at verse 2. Thus says Yahweh, the one who made you, 
and the one who formed you from the womb, he will help you. Do not fear my servant Jacob and Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Do you see what he does there? He reminds them that he formed them as a nation. Even, get this, even when Abraham was a fertilized egg in the womb of his mother, Yahweh supervised the entire process and gave him a son and made him a family and made him into a nation of people. And the point is, the same God who formed Israel as a nation is the same God who could fulfill all the promises that he made to that same nation. Do you see? Which is why he says for the fifth time in three chapters, do not fear. There is no reason to fear. And why not? It looks like there are plenty of reasons to fear. And yet the reason why there is no reason to fear is because what God has planned for the end of the age. Look at verse 3. There's no need to fear at all. Why? For God says, I will pour out waters on a thirsty ground and rivers on a dry land. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among them, among the grass, like poplars on streams of water. What is that? But the renewal, the regeneration and the repopulation of the nation of Israel. What I'm saying is that there in verses 3 and 4, don't miss this, there in verses 3 and 4 is a condensed, miniature display of the salvation that Yahweh will bring to them at the end of the age. Look at verse 3. God says, I will pour out waters on a thirsty ground and rivers on a dry land. I take that literally and so should you. You should. You understand the prophets are replete again and again with pictures and portrayals and previews and foretastes of the renewal of creation, the removal, the extracting of sin's curse and making the earth again like the garden of Eden. This is real. Yahweh loves the image of flowing waters and streams in the desert. We saw it before in chapter 32, 15, chapter 35, verses 1 and 2, chapter 41, verse 18, and chapter 42, verse 19. He will pour out streams and rivers in the desert, barren lands will be abundant, dry and thirsty lands unfit for human habitation will be once again like the Garden of Eden because you understand paradise was lost on the earth. Paradise will be regained on the earth. And you understand, that is a reason why we do not need to fear. The second reason why we don't need to fear, they didn't need to fear, verse 3, not only will Yahweh pour out streams in the desert, he will pour out his spirit and regenerate his people. Look at the text. I will pour out waters on a thirsty land, rivers on a dry ground. Here it is. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You can't help but see the parallel, can you? Streams in the desert giving life to barren lands. The Spirit of God on the dead giving life to barren souls. 
This is the restoration of creation and the regeneration of the nation. And, and all of it coming at the end of the age. And all of these are given as reasons not to fear. And they are persuasive. They are persuasive. Because think about what Isaiah is doing here. Think about what God is doing here. Listen very carefully. The short-term pain and danger of this life today will eventually give way to the long-term pleasure and delight in the life to come, right? You believe that, don't you? The point is there is nothing, there is nothing that can happen in this life that will in any way jeopardize God's plans for the end of the age. And think, think about what this text means for us as the church. We are not Israel, but we have already received the spirit promised to Israel. We've already received half of what is still to come, which means the best is still to come. That is exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians 1.14 when he said the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we obtain possession of it to the praise of His glory. Tell me, church, be honest with me. Be honest. If you are in Christ this morning, and you are chosen by the Father, and you are paid for by the Son, and you are indwelt by the Spirit, and you have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and you have the assurance of God's love behind you, the power of His sovereignty over you, tell me, church, what do you fear and suffer now that will still be? Be here when Christ arrives. Do you see? What anguish and pain do you have now that will still be here in the glory of the kingdom? What loss have you suffered? What tears have you wept? What griefs have you carried in this life that will not be removed and repaired when paradise is regained? Do you see? That's what you do with fear. And that's what you do with faith. You starve your fears by not saying what if, but you feed your faith by saying what is. That's exactly what God is doing here. And what is, what is true, what is real, what is certain, what is guaranteed is the final phase of our salvation so majestic in its glory that it will make everything we have suffered in this life worth it in the end. Look at verse 5. Speaking of the end, this, this is so incredible. This is a, this is a, a beautiful vignette of the conversion of Israel. These are spirit-indwelled Israelites in the future and the kinds of things they're going to say in the kingdom. Look at, look at the text. This one will say, I belong to Yahweh. And this one will call upon the name of Jacob. 
And this one will write on, or maybe even better, with his hand, belonging to Yahweh, and he will be named with honor by the name of Israel. That's a powerful picture, isn't it? Almost like a, like a montage in a movie. Isaiah cuts back and forth to different future portrayals of converted Israelites and the things that they're going to say. This one over here says, I belong to Yahweh. This one over here calls upon the name of Jacob, which means he puts his faith in the God of Jacob. This one writes with his hands, spray paints on the wall, belonging to Yahweh. You see the point of this, right? God is calling these people to repentance by showing their future descendants coming to repentance. This is the future that could be theirs if they just pried their fingers off of their idols and come back to Yahweh as the treasure of their souls. And my question for you is, is there anything stirring in your heart right now? Are you among those, perhaps, who are still in need of the life-giving work of the Spirit of God? What I'm asking is, have you truly yielded your life to Yahweh by faith in His Son? Can you honestly look yourself in the mirror today and say, La Yahweh Ani, I belong to Yahweh. Because if not, I just need you to know that God has preserved you and kept you alive for this very moment to get another opportunity and maybe your last opportunity to repent and yield to Christ alone. Which brings us to the second way. The second way Yahweh purges idolatry. Number two through the supremacy he portrays. Through the supremacy that he portrays because to beat the competition, you got to show why you're better than everybody else. <laughs> you see, the way to slay idols in the soul, beloved, the way to do that is to see that Yahweh is supreme. You get that, right? You've got to see who God is and his matchless supremacy that simply dwarfs all the counterfeit gods of our lives as pathetic and weak. That's exactly what God does. Look at verses 6 through 8 and tell me, tell me if idols can compete. Thus says Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And apart from me, there is no God. And who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. From the time I appointed an ancient people, and let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Was it not from long ago I made it known and I have declared it and you are my witnesses? Is there any God besides me or any other rock? I know of none. Hmm. You know what that is right there? That is dangerous theology. Not harmful to the soul by any means, but 
harmful to any idols that take up residence in the soul. You understand, before Yahweh even gets to his satire, mocking idols as stupid and ridiculous, he gives the deepest reason why they are stupid and ridiculous, namely himself. He is the reason why idolatry is absurd. Look at verse 6. Look at God's proclamation of his own preeminence. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. Stop there. What does that mean that Yahweh is king? Furthermore, what does it mean that he is Yahweh? That's a big deal. That's really important. Because you understand Yahweh is God's name. And now you know that Yahweh's name has meaning. It's not just sounds, it has meaning. And now you know exactly what that name means, built on a present tense verb, his very name reveals his nature as eternal and self-existent. His name is a verb. He just is the God who is, and there never was a time when he was not. And as self-existent, as eternal, Yahweh is the king. Which means he rules and he reigns and he governs everything that comes to pass. And that is why his title as Redeemer means diddly squat. Because as sovereign, self-existent king, that is the guarantee that he can deliver and save his people. Do you see? Do you see what Isaiah is doing here? What God is doing here? And yet, the question is, what would this sovereign, self-existent king wish to say? What does he want to say about himself? Only this. I am the first, and I am the last, and apart from me, there is no God. That's it. That's all he wants to say about himself. He is the first, and he is the last. What does that mean? Well, it means he's the beginning and the end, if you will, the alpha and the omega. You understand what, what, what that means is to get this, this is very important, is that God is complete in himself and he needs nothing apart from his own infinite fullness to be who he is or do what he does. That's why he says, apart from me, there is no God. God needing nothing but God is what it means for God to be God. And yet, God is willing. God is willing. God, God is open to someone challenging his supremacy. God is open to someone offering up alternative beings in the universe who would rival his greatness, who could challenge his supremacy, who could be equal or even greater to him. He, he's open to someone come and make their case. Look at verse 7. I am the first. I am the last. There was no one besides me. And who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it. Let him recount it to me in order. From the time I established an ancient people, let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. In other words, come at me. Come at me. I'm ready. 
If you think you know of someone equal to me or superior to me or even remotely like me, let him come and proclaim and declare it. And if they really are like me, the proof is in the pudding, is it not? If they are like me, they should, like me, be able to predict and control the future. Do you know anyone like that? Anyone? Anyone? And the response to Yahweh's challenge from the nations and their pathetic little man-made gods is silence. An uncomfortable, awkward, blushing silence staring at the ground because there is no one like Yahweh, infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, self-existent and sovereign. Can you see, can you see the heart-searching relevance of what God is doing here? Can you see what he's doing? Can you see the practical power of God declaring his own supremacy in the context? The lesson is, beloved, theology matters. Our view of God matters. That who you believe God to be determines how you live your life and who you will be. You understand Truth is for life. Theology is for battle. Deep thoughts about God are the armor for the soul so that when, not if, but when the dragons of fear and unbelief breathe their fire and cut with their claws, your faith in the triune God remains profoundly unshaken. Which is why he says what he does in verse 8. Look at the text. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Why? Why not? Because was it not from long ago that I made it known? And I have declared it? Declared what? What did God declare? Oh, I don't know. The future. Things to come that he couldn't possibly know unless he were God and decreed what the future will be. You understand, don't you? For God to be sovereign is what it means for God to be God. And notice he says, you're my witnesses. You're my witnesses. You know, you have seen, you've been a witness to how I not only merely know what is going to happen, but I decree and ordain and predetermine and appoint what is going to happen. Which is why he asks what he does at the end of verse 8. It's a rhetorical question, which are my favorite kind in the Bible. Is there any God besides me or is there any other rock I know of none. And God would know, wouldn't he? Being God, God would know if there's any other God beside himself. And since there is no other God than himself, the point is that means that he is a God who can and should and must be trusted. That's why he calls himself a rock. A, a rock. Not a tree. Not a hole in the ground. Not a pile of dirt. But a rock. Stable, immovable, unshakable, unbreakable, and indestructible. 
Do you see what God is doing here? This whole chapter is a remedy and cure for idolatry. This chapter exists to purge and expunge idolatry out of the soul. And yet before God even gets to the stupidity of idolatry, which he is about to do, he first provides a picture of his own supremacy. And that you see is the power. That is where the power comes from. To kill idolatry in our lives. Don't you see? See, from a hundred miles away, Mount Everest looks like nothing more than a jagged stone that barely appears on the horizon, right? From our vantage point on earth, the stars and the planets are nothing more than little specks that flicker in the distance. Other things feel bigger. Other things feel more prominent, more beautiful, more powerful, more capturing to our gaze, more staggering in their size and beauty, right? Those things don't look big. Other things look big. But you see, it's all about perception. It's all about rather your misperception. Because should you stand at the foot of Mount Everest, should you see the planets through the lens of a telescope, everything instantly changes. They are not small. You are small. And that is exactly how idolatry works. Do you see? Idols in this life look big and more powerful and more beautiful and more thrilling and more capturing to our gaze. But you see, it's all about perception. Idols only look big because we do not see the galaxy of God's perfections. The counterfeit gods that capture our worshiping gaze disappear from view when we stand at the base of the mountain looking up at the towering majesty of God. Do you see? That's what God is doing. Let me ask you this. Think of the things that you fear the most? What are they? The things that make you panic and act impulsive. Think of the things that distract you the most and the things with which you waste your time. You want to stop, but you just can't seem to get control. Think of the habits in your life of which you are ashamed, that you don't want anyone to know about. And you really want to win, but you just can't seem to get on top of them. What are those? Think of the last thing you did. You know you shouldn't have done it, but you did it anyway. All to gain some prize that God had forbidden. Don't you see? The point is, that is the behavior of idolatry. Those are the symptoms of counterfeit gods lurking in the soul. And my point is, God's point is, the puny idols that take God's place are stripped of their power when we see who God is. Beloved, the application to your lives is clear. It's practical and it's unmistakable. And the application is Bible. Lots and lots 
and lots of Bible. You have to think thoughts about God. You have to think God's thoughts about God until you become so staggered by who God is from the pages of scripture that all of the idols that charm you most will be exposed as pathetic and weak. That's how you win. See what Isaiah is doing here? But that's not the only way to win. There's one more way he gives us to win over idols. Hang in there. We're almost done, and this is the best for last. The third way Yahweh purges idolatry. Number three, the stupidity of idolatry he presents. The stupidity of idolatry he presents. And here, here he brings out the weapon of satire. A theological comedy, a holy mockery, here it is. And you see, to mock idolatry, to do a little theological comedy sketch about the buffoonery of idol worship, you have to understand, this was kind of a risky thing for Isaiah to do. To us, it's a no-brainer. For Isaiah to do this, it would be considered a little brash, a little impolite, not inclusive, not respecting those outside the community of Israel. Beloved, you have to appreciate that polytheistic worship of idols was the cultural norm in Isaiah's day, and it had been for centuries. That was normal. Worshiping one God that you couldn't even see, that was not normal. That was considered cultish and bizarre. We see stupid, carved little action figures sitting on a shelf representing gods that don't exist, and we mock that as preposterous, and it is preposterous. But in the ancient world, idolatry was sophisticated. It was cool. It was cosmopolitan. It was cutting edge. You have to understand, idolatry had a social and, and cultural and philosophical power that made it look idiotic if you worshipped only one god that didn't even have an image to represent it. Are, are you feeling what I'm saying here? It's totally different. And you understand, they had a god for everything. Idolatry was literally woven into the fabric of everything in society. And it made way more sense. That made way more sense than having only one God to whom you gave your allegiance to them that was simple-minded, that was, that was backwoods, that was juvenile, that didn't make any sense. And add to the fact that idolatry was really exciting. It was really exciting. I mean, with the worship of idols, there was sex, there were parties, there was music, there was ecstasy, there were narcotics and dancing and the promise of crops and children and health and financial prosperity and all you had to do to gain those things was sleep with a temple cult prostitute. Not a bad deal. We got girls over here. We got statues. We got girls. We got wine. We got orgies. We got parties. This is great stuff. This is great stuff. Which means what Isaiah is doing here in chapter 44 would be considered outside the community of Israel outrageous and offensive. Put in today's terms, he would be canceled for what he is about to do. And yet, you have to understand, what Isaiah is about to do strikes at the very heart and nerve center of idolatry at its most vulnerable point. Isaiah cracks the thin shell of idolatry's cosmopolitan credibility and exposes it to be the hollow and empty deception that it really is. Verses 9 through 11. Those who form an idol, all of them are literally worthless. 
And the objects of their desire bring no profit. Their witnesses, they do not see, they do not know, in order that they will be put to shame. Who has formed a god and crafted an idol to no profit? Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame, and the craftsmen, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand. Let them be terrified. Let them be ashamed together. You can sense a bit of a snarky attitude, can't you? As Isaiah calls names and calls out the entire Worship of idol enterprise as ridiculous and worthless, not even, just worship, not even just worthless, but destructive to the soul. You notice there three times in the text, he talks about they will be put to shame. They will be put to shame. They will be put to shame. Starting in verse 9, Isaiah calls out three different groups of people. There are the idol makers. There are the idols themselves. Then there are those who buy and worship the idols. Look at the text, verse 9. Those who make an image or an idol, all of them are worthless. I know your version might say futile. The word is literally in the Hebrew, nothingness. These guys are losers, man. The lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. People who have never brought anything positive to anyone in their lives precisely because they lead people away from the living God. Next group in verse 9, these are the idols themselves. Isaiah calls them desirable things, objects of desire. And what does he say about idols? They bring no profit. There's no gain in the worship of idols. This is a zero-sum game that only leads to wrath and judgment at the end of the age. This will not go well for them. Verse 10, verse 10 a question just dripping with mockery. He says, who has formed a God and crafted an idol to no profit? Don't you love it when people ask you loaded questions designed to corner you? That's what he does. Who has ever made a false God and it did not profit them? Uh, everybody is the answer. Do you see what he's doing? They bring no profit, only destruction, only ruin, only harm. Verse 11, Isaiah really goes for the throat. Behold, all of his, all of the idol makers' companions, they will be put to shame. And the craftsmen, they are mere men. Let them be gathered together. Let them stand. Let them be terrified. Let them be ashamed together. Do you, do you see what Isaiah is picturing here? He's picturing all the idol makers of history being gathered together like cattle. Standing there in silence, face to the ground, head hung in shame, awaiting their destruction. Not cool, man. Not cool, Isaiah. And you can see his goal to deter his people from the atrocity of idolatry, which he continues to do, verses 12 through 17. He continues his roast, his comedy routine. Because I don't know, I don't know if you've ever been to Universal Studios in Hollywood, or if you like watching behind-the-scenes features on how they make movies. I don't know if that's a thing you like to do, but it's interesting, right? It's kind of one of those things where it's, although it's interesting to find out how a movie is made, once you find out how they made the movie, I don't know about for you, for me, it kind of kills the magic of the movie, right? When you compare how they made it versus the finished product of the film, you can kind of see how hollow and empty the whole thing is. It's interesting, but now you know the truth. That's exactly what Isaiah does with idol worship. It's exactly what he does. He gives a behind-the-scenes feature on how idols are made, and in so doing, kills the mystique and power that idols possess. Look at verses 12 through 13. 
He, the idol maker, the craftsman, crafts an iron tool, and he works over the coals, and he fashions an idol with hammers, and he works it with a strong arm, and he gets hungry, and he has no strength, and he drinks water, and he becomes weary. He crafts wood, and he stretches out a line. He marks it out with chalk, and he makes it with chisels. There's another way to phrase that. He outlines it with the compass. He makes it like the form of man, like the glory of man, to dwell in a house. You see what Isaiah is doing, right? If you were a worshiper of idols in the ancient world, think of the impact what Isaiah did just had on your entire experience. You go to some temple or a holy site, low-lit sanctuary with candles and incense and priests in their garb and sacred symbols on the wall, worshipers chanting their little prayers, and then, and then the idol, towering and imposing in the room, both grim and beautiful at the same time, covered in gold, priceless, invalued, silently demanding the allegiance of his worshipers. My point is, that whole experience would certainly give the impression of the sacred, right? Walking into a scene like that, that whole vibe would feel like a real encounter with the mystical and the supernatural. And yet, what Isaiah just did literally kills the magic of the entire experience. Verse 12 begins in the shop where the idol's made. In fact, if you look at the grammar, he actually goes all the way back to the making of the tool that will make the God. The craftsman makes a chisel to shape and carve the deity. He works over the coals. He heats the metal. He makes it pliable. Verse 12, he's got various hammers and tools with which he makes the idol. And yet the God maker can only work so long, right? He gets hungry. He gets tired. He gets fatigued, he gets weary, he forgets to drink water. Honey, did you drink water today? Oh, no, I didn't. Oh, the doctor said you're going to get dehydrated, you got to drink water. Yeah, you're right. Sits down, takes a break. Do, do you see, Isaiah's not missing the irony of this. This is a man who gets weak and thirsty and fatigued and tired, making a God that people will trust for their livelihood. The point is the only way that idol worship can work is if you disengage your logic. Just don't think about where the hamburger came from and you can enjoy it. Don't think about where the idol come from, came from and you can worship it, do you see? I eat burgers, I just don't want to see the cow die. Verse 13 is a total poke in the eye. Isaiah accelerates the mockery. He, the idol maker, he works with wood, stretches out a line, marks it with chalk, he makes it with chisels and outlines it with a compass. He makes it like the image of man, like the glory of man to dwell in a house. This thing is devastating to the credibility of idolatry, don't you see? This craftsman artisan, he takes a hunk of wood, measures it, outlines it with chalk, meaning he marks it out beforehand. He's got to get the cuts exactly right. It's got to be perfect. He takes his chisels and knives and begins to give it shape and definition. Isaiah says he outlines it with the compass. I did some digging here. This could be an ancient tool used for making circular cuts and shapes. This is turning out beautifully. Because you know the deity began as nothing more than a hunk of lumber. It has to be made beautiful by someone more powerful than it. Note verse 13. Don't miss the sarcasm. 
He, the idol maker, makes it like the image of man, get this, and like the glory of a man to dwell in a house. Think about what's happening here. A man made by God makes a God that looks like a man to be worshipped by man as a God. Makes total sense. I mean, nothing about this is rational. And yet idol worship is never rational. Molech and Baal do not sit upon our shelves, but there are other idols lurking in our lives, perhaps just as enticing, just as appealing, just as dangerous, just as irrational, just as deadly. And look at the grand finale, the, the culmination of the process. He makes it like an image of man, like the glory of man to dwell in a house, meaning probably a house of worship, a temple. This was what all the hours of labor and toil and excruciating attention to detail was for so that the idol could sit on a shelf and do nothing. I mean, the entire enterprise of idolatry is preposterous, isn't it? And yet, to be fair, to be fair, if there was an ancient idol worshiper here today, he'd say, well, Jared, you're misrepresenting the entire issue here. The issue is not the piece of wood or metal itself. It's that that thing was to be the agent through which the God it represented channeled its power and fortune to the worshiper. Fair enough, fair enough. And yet, notice what Isaiah does in 14 through 17. He, he turns the volume of satire all the way up. Look what he says. He says, surely he cuts a tree for himself, a cedar, and he takes a cypress or, or an oak, and he makes it grow among the trees of the forest, and he plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow, and it becomes for man something to burn, and he takes from it, and he warms himself, and he cooks, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god from the same tree, and he worships it. And he makes it like an idol, and he bows down to it. With this half he burns in the fire, and this half he cooks meat, and he roasts a roast, and he is satisfied, and he, and he warms himself, and he says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. We laugh, but it's tragic. This is, this is moral outrage expressed through comic art. And although it's funny, it's not ha-ha funny. Verse 14, notice Isaiah, Isaiah, notice what Isaiah does. He takes us all the way back to the arboretum, to the planting of the tree that will be cut down and become an idol. Do you see what he's doing there? God grows tree, man cuts down tree, makes God. Verse 15, some of the wood, he makes a fire. He warms himself, he cooks his food. With the other part of the wood, he makes a God and he worships it. Makes total sense. Verse 16, this half, he burns in the fire, cooks his meat, makes a pot roast. Yum. He uses the wood to warm his house. And Isaiah does not miss the irony of the moment. Verse 16, happy and content, sitting by the fire after a hard day's work of making idols and the fire heated by the same wood that made his God, he says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Literally, the Hebrew word is light. I have seen the light. Which is ironic because he could not be more in darkness. Verse 18. They, they, the idol worshipers, they do not know. 
they do not understand. Why? For it says God has literally smeared over their eyes so that they do not see and their hearts so that they do not understand. This is Romans 1, is it not? Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator. Therefore, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. That's what this is. Verse 20, the one who makes and worships idols, he says, feeds on ashes, eating. I mean, this no, brings no more valuable, value to your life than eating ashes brings health to your body. A deceived heart leads him astray. It, the God, will not deliver his soul. And notice, he does not say, is this not a lie in my right hand holding the idol? And the reason why he doesn't say that is because he is blind. And he's dead. And he's demented. And he's deceived. And unless something radical and supernatural happens to him, he is damned forever. It's funny, but it's not. Because idolatry is an issue, isn't it? Idolatry is an issue. Not just for statue-worshipping pagans afraid of voodoo, but for every soul in every age, because the human heart is, as Calvin said, a perpetual factory of idols. In fact, I believe that idolatry, to be, get this, the definitive issue underneath and behind every single issue in our lives. Don't you see the root of sin? All our sin is to take something that's not God and to love it and to worship it and to try to be satisfied in it as if it were God. And so my question for you, beloved, my question is, do you know how to detect the presence of idols in your life. Can you do that? Do you know the signs when idols begin to take dominion of your life? Can you see that behind all of our anger and our lust and our deception and our greed and our pride, and our conflicts with other people, can you see that should you pull the thread and trace that sin to its very source, that you will find that God is being exchanged? Which leads to the final question, and I close with this. The question is, where does the power to shatter idolatry come from, right? How do we win the war against sin in our lives at the deepest level possible, at the worship level, at the factory level of our hearts from which the idols emerge? How do we do that? And the answer to that, the answer of how we win the war against sin and idolatry is what I call, get this now, the idol eviscerating power of the supremacy of God. The idol eviscerating power of the supremacy of God. And to eviscerate means, of course, to extract, to surgically remove, even to disembowel. 
Therefore, to disembowel the idols of the soul, no matter what they are, is the repeated traumatic encounter with the supremacy of God. To see and savor who God is in the glory of all of his perfections, especially how he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, to eviscerate our idols, to pull up our sins at the deepest possible root, don't miss this, you must sabotage your soul with glorious portrayals of the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. To always set before your eyes the matchless worth of Christ in all of his beauty and redemptive glory. Don't you see? The more glory you see of who Christ is, the more you are freed from the idol's that entangle you. That is how you be free. That is how to win. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we have complicated hearts. Not to you, but to us they are. Oh Lord, we don't see the riddles of our own hearts oftentimes. We don't see how blind we could be, how many blind spots we have. And Lord, you have given us your word to, to show us those things, to, to help with those things. Thank you for the mirror of your word, the laser of your word, the scalpel of your word that exposes and reveals. And not just that, Lord, but it is also, it is also that which heals and soothes and transforms and satisfies. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be lethal with idols, to be great idol hunters in our lives. And that the way we would destroy them and crush them and obliterate them is through clear perceptions of who you are from the pages of Holy Scripture. We need this, O oh Lord. We need your help. I pray for those who may be hard-hearted in this room, angry, offended, provoked, not unlike the people that Isaiah was talking to. I pray for their brokenness. I pray for their repentance. I pray that they would bow the knee to you and yield to you in sweet submission and faith. Oh, may it be, always and only, for your glory. Amen.